Maine's Political Pulse is made possible by listeners and by Lee Auto Malls, featuring all electric vehicles from Nissan and Toyota in stock now. Learn more at leeauto.com electric. Welcome to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Maine Public's chief political correspondent, Steve Missler. Politics reporter Kevin Miller is taking some well-deserved time off. This week, The Pulse joined Maine Calling for its Month in Review program. And what you're about to hear is a lightly edited version of that live discussion with healthcare reporter Patty White, host Keith Shortall, and myself. Steve, uh, let's just start with the elephant in the room, as we've all been watching closely, even in the past few minutes, it appears the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are nearing a a two-year deal on raising the debt ceiling. Uh, But as we hold our breath, the Mills administration says it's preparing for the possibility that the U.S. government might default, which it said would have, uh, says would have serious implications for the state economy and for Maine residents. What are they worried about? Yeah, the slow-moving drama, Keith, of allowing the federal government to pay its bills is inching closer to a self-inflicted disaster if these negotiations don't pan out. And that's left states and governors to game out exactly what will happen if Republicans in the U.S. House don't reach a deal with the Biden administration and, and decline to raise the debt limit by June 1st, which is the default date. The reason this affects Uh, state government is because states receive a lot of federal funding to administer all kinds of programs from dairy inspections to Medicaid, which is a health insurance program for low-income people. Uh, And we also have something like 10,000 federal employees that work here in Maine. If the federal government defaults, basically what happens is that it has to decide which of its debts it will actually pay. And since this has never happened before, it's led to all sorts of speculation that Federal programs will go unfunded, people on Social Security won't get their paychecks, and people on Medicaid or Medicare might not get coverage. Again, some of this is very speculative, but the Mills administration has done an analysis of possible scenarios, and their big takeaway is that Maine might be able to cover some of the costs in the programs that it co-funds with the feds because it has a significant budget surplus, but only for a little while. Basically, the longer this uh, drags on, the worse it is. it will be for Maine residents. And Governor Janet Mills described it as potentially catastrophic for Maine with effects that could ripple through the state economy and affect unemployment rates and personal income. So there's a little bit of a, a buffer fund there, but it, it would run out if this isn't resolved uh, in a certain amount of time. The default would also affect the two-year budget also, which has already been approved, right? So what would would happen there? Right. So potentially it could affect the state budget because part of it is based on revenue projections in forecasted tax collections like income and corporate taxes. Well, if personal income falls and unemployment skyrockets and tax collections plummet, that would mean Maine could be looking at a precarious budget situation that the legislature would need to address by way of spending cuts. Maine law requires a balanced budget. So if the state suddenly sees a big dip in in revenue that blows a hole in the current spending plan, the governor and the legislature will have to step in and make some pretty tough decisions. The legislature, meanwhile, continues to slog through its work with a lot of 
big-ticket proposals still awaiting action uh, by the House and Senate. Among them, the governor's bill allowing abortions later in pregnancy, uh, which has this bill has yet to emerge from judiciary, as I understand it. Uh, Patty, remind us of what this bill would do and, and, and what, its, what its chances are. Well, it would do a few things. So current Maine law allows abortions until viability, which is generally considered around 24 weeks. And after that, abortions are only allowed if the health or the life of the mother is in danger. This bill would remove that standard and allow abortions after viability if a medical provider decides it's necessary. So the idea is to let medical providers with their patients decide. Um, it was inspired by Dana Pierce's story. She's a Maine mom who found out when she was 32 weeks pregnant that her baby had a severe lethal fetal abnormality. Uh, she felt the baby was suffering. She wanted to get an abortion. She couldn't get it in Maine. She had to go to Colorado and spend tens of thousands of dollars. So um, on top of this very traumatic diagnosis, she had a very traumatic experience. And the idea is to um, help people in similar situations uh, get abortions later in pregnancy. It's also a decriminalization bill. So it would protect providers from criminal penalties for performing abortions later in pregnancy, and it would also protect people who help others get a medication abortion in Maine. And finally, it would change the way that data is collected to better protect the identity of people who get abortions. And mm. as for its chances, I mean, you know, it's Governor Mills' bill. She's a Democrat. It's a democratically controlled legislature. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that even though Roe v. Wade was overturned almost a year ago, this is the first chance that Maine lawmakers have to vote on this issue. And I think uh, supporters think that's going to work in their favor. Um, I also think there's a desire among some in Maine to uh, for the state to really take a strong stance on this issue, given that other states are enacting restrictions. They want Maine to be a place that counters those restrictions. Uh, this obviously has um, opposition, and the those opponents are are saying they uh, that they would do a people's veto if this uh, passed. Steve, uh, although they do, they still believe they can defeat it in the legislature. Yeah, the Keith, the, the people's veto is a consideration, uh, at least according to the Christian Civic League of Maine. Uh, the league has been really organizing a lot of the opposition at the state house. And Director Carol Conley told me recently that his focus is first on defeating the bill in the legislature. Now, as Patty pointed out, that might be difficult based on the number of co-sponsors uh, that the bill has. It's over 90 in the fact that Democrats have such uh, solid majorities to pass this thing. But there are a few holdouts, and I think the Christian Civic League will focus on persuading them to oppose the bill. I don't have a great sense of how successful they've been in that regard. But if the league is not successful and the bill becomes law, then I think you'll see a movement to launch a people's veto to overturn it. Connolly uh, told me it's something they're contemplating, but he didn't want to get too far ahead and, and guarantee it. That said, the league might be one of several groups that contemplate such a thing. There's been a lot of uh, rumors and, and speculation about other groups, just Republican-led groups that uh, that might spearhead this. But if there is to be a people's veto, I think the Christian Civic League will be a big player just because they have the ability to organize a lot of uh, like-minded churches. And that was uh, evident, actually, during the public hearing when a record number of people uh, showed up to testify, and, and uh, most of them were uh, abortion opponents. Opponents held a rally this week that coincided with a public hearing on a paid family leave proposal. 
that's being pushed by Democrats and progressive advocacy groups, but is opposed by business groups. As supporters point out, uh, Patty, that uh, Maine is the only state in New England that doesn't have such a, a paid family leave law. So, so how how does this how does this work? So it would allow workers to take up to twelve weeks off each year. It would be paid for through a payroll contribution that would be split evenly between employers and employee. It would be capped at one percent. And it would allow exemptions for businesses with fewer than 15 employees. Opponents uh, in the business community say that, uh, you know, this would, this would play, because of that difficult bookkeeping and the math, that this would place a really a, a major burden on employers as they're trying to keep track of who's earning, you know, certain salaries and wh what the percentage is and who pays and all of that. Is that kind of their major opposition? Is it, is it bureaucratic or do, is there some level of agreement in, in there somewhere that maybe family leave is, you know, could be a workable idea? Yes. I mean, there is agreement. I think everyone um, from the sponsors of the legislation, and this bill has a lot of co-sponsors, 101 uh, sponsors on this bill, um, including one Republican. Um, they all want to see this passed. Business groups say they want to see it passed uh, uh, or see paid family medical leave. And Governor Mills would like to see paid family medical leave. The question is, can they reach a compromise? And so for the business groups, yeah, they think it's an administrative burden, the, the current form. They think it's too generous. It's too expensive. Um, they also think it's going to make the workforce shortage even worse. I mean, the main state chamber said if businesses right now are having a hard time filling positions and someone takes 12 weeks leave under this program, how are they going to find someone to fill in for those 12 weeks? Um, so that's a major concern. Yeah, there, um, there was one, I heard one, someone say uh, from the business community, well, what happens if I hire someone and then the day they're hired, they take 12 weeks off and they're a summer employee, I lose them for 12 out of the 16 weeks of the summer. Uh, so, so that was an example, I guess, of the the worst fears that might materialize. But, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, the sponsors of this bill, so Senator Maddie Daughtry, she's been working on this for more than a decade, and um, she's introduced several iterations of this. And she really thinks that this is the, the year that it's going to happen, that it will be passed, I think, partly because of um, the bills she's introduced in the past, she's kind of learned what works, what doesn't. I think also the way that this bill was done, it was it came out of a committee that was tasked with creating um, a plan for a paid family and medical leave program. And so she co-chaired that with Representative Kristen Cloutier. They spent two years developing recommendations, then um, sought feedback. They said they spoke to hundreds of businesses and individuals and incorporated that feedback to come up with a, comp, you know, a, a bill that really reflected many different viewpoints. Um, so they've really emphasized that they're they want to keep working on this. And actually, at the public hearing yesterday, they presented a compromise to the original bill that they submitted. Um, the question is, you know, can they reach a compromise when there's only four weeks left in the legislative session? This is a very complicated issue. There's a lot at stake financially. Um, and, and something else that they're kind of running up against is there's this voter referendum waiting in the wings. Uh, you know, if this is not passed in the legislature, um, that this could be on the ballot in 2024, and a lot of people would rather see a legislative solution that does incorporate many viewpoints versus just a straight-ahead voter referendum.
Yeah. And Steve, as Patty's saying, time's kind of running out in this session, and there are a handful of other measures that kind of hang in the balance, including so solar incentives. Yeah, that's one big issue hanging out there. And right now, the debate over what's called net energy billing is really heating up. Uh, so net energy billing is basically a subsidy program that was uh, bolstered in 2019 to really supercharge solar development. And it's worked in terms of facilitating projects. That's why we're seeing them pop up all over the state. There's even one in the jug handle off of I-95 in Augusta. The issue with these, though, is that they're subsidized in part by electricity ratepayers, and the bill is coming due, and at a time when rates are already quite high. Uh, so Bill Harwood, the public advocate, has been calling for some reforms to dial back this program, and that's drawn the ire of the solar industry, which has accused him of carrying the water of central main power and versant power to companies that are arguably reluctant participants in the program. I'm not sure how this will all shake out, Keith. I do know, though, that the governor is, isn't is quite ready to dial back the program, at least not to the extent that the public advocate would like. But there's no doubt that ratepayers will feel a pinch if the legislature doesn't make some changes before the end of the session. There's also several other issues that are being discussed, but will likely have to wait until next year, including an anticipated uh, tribal sovereignty bill uh, and, and either an expansion or a repeal of Maine's landmark internet privacy law. This week, sadly, we lost our friend and colleague, Mal Leary, who died last weekend. He was 72 and is being remembered today in Augusta. And of course, he was a prominent voice, not only in this very segment on this program, uh, but he was our State House uh, Bureau Chief for decades and our go-to on election night and for radio and TV and uh, political debates. And of course, you know, Mal's known in, in journalism circles as a relentless advocate for openness in government. This was near and dear to his heart, uh, not just in Maine, but uh, he became president of the National Freedom of Information Coalition. It's, it's quite, a, uh, quite a career in his 45 years, Steve. Yeah, Keith, it's, it's pretty amazing that 45 years of Mal's life were dedicated to, the, to this job, and an important part of it is government transparency. And Mal, as you said, was a relentless advocate for that. He played a huge part in crafting and changing uh, Maine's Freedom of Access Act, which is the state version of the Federal Freedom of Information Act, which basically allows the public to examine and observe the actions of its government and public officials. And Mao really held public officials accountable to Maine's law. I remember in 2012 when Republican Governor Paula Page tried to pass a bill that shielded a lot of his working papers from the Maine open records law, and Mal fought that as an advocate for open government and even used an interview with LePage as a candidate for leverage. During that interview, candidate LePage had told Mal, quote, if I'm elected governor, we're going to be so open, even you will be amazed. But of course, that changed once he became governor and Mal reminded him of it, telling the Bangor Daily News in 2012, quote, I'm amazed, but not in the way the governor thought I would be. And of course, a lot of people will remember Mal for his career in open government and advocacy. And of course, I will too. But as someone who worked with him for five years, I'll remember a lot of other little things that were sort of peaks into his personality. You know, he loved cats, which always made sense to me because Mal was a such a fastidious person and reserved in the sharing of his personal life. 
And but yeah, he could also be very incredibly warm and sentimental if he trusted you. Um, he had high expectations for people, but often higher ones for himself. Uh, reporters who heard the stream <laughs> of profanities from his office when he messed up recording his voice tracks can confirm this. You know, it was a pretty jarring experience for first time visitors to the State House press corps, uh, especially when that blue language was coming from the offices of uh, Maine Public Radio. Uh, he was always entertained by legislators' attempts at humor during debates, which I never understood, but I loved anyway because he <laughs> seemed genuinely amused, you know? Um, and you can relate to this, Keith, as his uh, former supervisor. Uh, and when someone asked him how he was doing, he would often respond by saying, functioning. And that would be that. Yeah, that would be that. Uh, there's also a, an interesting story about there was a time there was a legislative aide who was... was uh, trying to control a, a press conference that you recited that you that you mentioned yeah that's right you know this this aide you know was doing what a lot of uh you know press aides do which is you know a routine tactic that's designed to shield the politician from a press conference that goes on too long their talking points are exhausted and they have to you know think on their feet and maybe be a little candid and at this press conference this aide calls out one more question and mal shoots back We'll ask as many questions as we want. This is a press conference, and it'll be over when we're done. And it was. <laughs> that was Mal. Patty, you worked with Mal, of course. So how will you remember him? Uh, just uh, his deep institutional knowledge. You know, whenever I went to the state house. When he was working there, I often had questions because it's a, you know, a complicated place. And whether I was asking about something happening that day or a larger question about how the legislature functions. He always had interesting insights and his depth of knowledge uh, just reflected his dedication uh, as a political reporter. Yeah. Steve, you wrote in the this week's Pulse newsletter that your son had created his own image of Mal as, as you know, we often do based on stories that, you know, you share after coming home from work at the state house. But then you both listened to our radio piece on Mal's career and his accomplishments while you were driving to school together on Monday morning. And you could, you could see that your son realized that there was something more to the image that he had in his mind. Yeah, Keith, I think uh, for my son, the tribute to Mal was a reminder that he was much more than this collection of funny stories that I tell him. And of course, Mao's career had long defined him for a lot of people in a different way. And I think he really understood this. And maybe that's why he worked longer and uh, harder than he needed to. You know, he could he could have retired a lot earlier than he did. And the fact that he didn't, I think, speaks to his sense of duty to this to this job, this profession. And uh, I think a lot of people remember him for that. And I think my son is one of them. Yeah, right. Thanks to both of you. Steve Bissler, our political uh, chief political correspondent, and Patty White covers health care for Maine Public. That's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. In a brief programming note that will affect the listeners of this podcast, going forward, the Pulse will no longer adhere to its typical Friday posting schedule. Instead, the Pulse will be distributed closer to when the news happens instead of the roundup format that we've come to lean on in recent years. Subscribers will still get the Pulse podcast when it's published, and that could happen more frequently than it does now. You can check out our newsletter this week for more details. I'm Steve Missler, and thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon on Maine's Political Pulse.